Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Good morning. You can listen to us every Wednesday morning, 10 o'clock live. Or if you can't hear us live, we archive it so you can hear it anytime you want, 24 hours a day. Uh, also, you can listen to my other show, which is uh, my new show, uh, The Social Workers on WCDB FM 90.9, Albany, New York. Um, I have two guests this morning, uh, two my first guest is the author of Cookies for Kids Cancer, Gretchen Holt-Witt. And Cookies for Kids Cancer is, uh, well, I'm sitting here with the book right now. It's a great book. It's got beautiful illustrations. And it was founded by uh, Gretchen and her husband, inspired by their son's fight against cancer. Um, and if you don't know this, uh, pediatric cancer remains the number one disease killer of children in the United States, not due to the science or the lack of science, but due to the lack of funding, uh, and hence uh, the book Cookies for Cancer. My second guest is Richard DeMilo, and he's going to be talking about the fate of American colleges and universities, which doesn't seem to be too good in the 21st century, how institutions of higher learning can rescue themselves from irrelevance and marginalization in the age of iTunes, YouTube, etc. But first, my first guest is Gretchen Holt-Witt. Nice to have you on the show this morning. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Yeah, well, you are doing great work, fantastic work. Uh, let's talk about uh, Cookies for Kids Cancer um, and why the book, how you raise money, uh, you know, the mission of, of actually writing this book and, uh, sure. and uh, some of the response that you've gotten. Absolutely. In um, February of 2007, my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Liam, was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. On the day he was diagnosed, he went to school. And I think that that's important to know because a lot of people have this sense that you will just know if somebody has cancer. You would know if your child has cancer. But the thing about pediatric cancer is that oftentimes it's referred to as the silent killer because by the time it's diagnosed, the disease has, is so widespread that in a lot of cases it's not even treatable. So he's diagnosed. That was a huge shock. It was even more of a shock to learn that, as you mentioned, it's the number one disease killer of kids in the U.S. It kills more children than asthma, AIDS, MS, and MD combined. And yet, I was completely blown away. I mean, I feel like I'm a fairly well-read person. I watch the news, you know, that kind of thing. I had never heard that statistic. So after his 
oncologist informed me that it's the number one disease killer, I looked at him and I said, well, why is that? And he said, because nobody cares about a kid who gets cancer. Kids who get cancer don't make headlines. And that was the very same day that the headlines in the news were about a White House official who had just been diagnosed with cancer. So I said, okay, you take care of my son, and after we get him on the path to good health, we'll do everything we can to make sure the kids make headlines. So Liam went through a course of treatment. It was very, very hard, um, but he was declared cancer-free in the summer of '07. But now I needed to get back to the other issue at hand, which was creating awareness, which leads to more funding, which leads to more research, which leads to a decrease in mortality rates. So I was sitting on the steps of Liam's school, and it was October of 2007. And I thought, okay, okay, what can I do? What can I do to raise money? And I had just recently heard a story about do what you know and do what you love. And I love to bake. And, you know, who doesn't know how to bake? You you can make a a box mix, whatever. But it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. And so I thought, okay, you know, I think I can get my friends together and we can bake some cookies, and we can sell them to um, raise money for pediatric cancer. So then the question was, well, how many should I bake? For some reason, maybe it was because I had just been through cancer treatment with Liam and anything seemed possible, the number 96,000 seemed like a reasonable number. So that's how Cookies for Kids Cancer started. We baked all 96,000 cookies. More importantly, we sold them all, and we raised over $420,000. Well, Gretchen, that, that's a great story. I, I mean, and obviously it was just the beginning. But don't you also, um, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about, boy, would I be able to do that? And, and, yes, you have the idea, and you're inspired to do it. But actually having the skills to be able to do it, do you have a marketing background? I have, no, I do not have a marketing background. And more importantly, I don't have any baking, professional baking background. background. And oftentimes, I'm sure that you and some of your listeners have seen that episode of the Lucille Ball show where she's shoving the chocolates down the front of her shirt when she's in a chocolate factory. (laughs) I was feeling like that many times when we were going through the experience. But I just felt like the little engine that could. If I just put one foot in front of the other, and if I had love in my heart, that there was no way that this was not going to be possible. So what you did was you're going to, you know, you have this idea, cookies for cancer, you're going to create this book, you're going to sell it, make money for the research, as you talk about, or right. your son's oncologist said, um, and I think a lot of people, getting back to that, aren't aware that there isn't enough funding for research because oh, it's not no. out, you know, we don't have the same, you don't get the same kind of press for pediatric cancer that you do for other cancers, although you are doing that. Um, so what about well, your I friends? What kind of friends did you get to help you to do this? I mean, this is, you know. <laughs> well, it, two things. One is I think that it's, pediatric cancer is just so scary that you kind of don't want to talk about it because, to talk about it means that it exists, and then, you know, you, you just kind of don't want to go down that path. Um, but here's was the amazing thing. The people who came to volunteer, I would say that I knew um, maybe 10% of them. The rest of them were people who had just heard, it's almost like this folklore story, heard about what was happening, heard that there was some mom who was going to bake 
you know, like 100,000 cookies, and she's helping to raise money for pediatric cancer, and her son was battling, and even though he was clean, you know, this was the right thing to do, and people poured in. It was amazing. I, I, I literally... I, I can't even tell you where all the people came from. But then fast forward, so my husband, after the oven school, my husband and I realized, huh, we're on to something here. Talking about being a good cookie, talking about good cookies is an easy way to get people to talk about pediatric cancer. So in September of 2008, we launched Cookies for Kids Cancer as a year-round organization. Our heritage, obviously, is holding bake sales. But we've expanded way beyond that, and it seemed only natural to come out with a cookbook. But as you might have noticed, since you have a copy of the book, it's a lot more than just a cookbook. There are profiles of more than 40 bake sale hosts from across the country. There are dozens of tips of things that you can do to hold a successful event. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look carefully, but we've had bake sales in 49 out of 50 states, Germany, the U.K., Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands. There is only one state that is a holdout. What state is that? Vermont. Vermont. I just got back from Vermont this morning. I'm very surprised. Vermont is, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and it's surprising that they wouldn't be the first ones on the bandwagon. I Maybe it's because I have to come up with ice cream cookies or something. That could be. Anyway, you're right. It's more than just a cookbook, with, and it has beautiful, uh, really beautiful uh, photographs, but it's, every, it's stories. It's pictures of kids, and um, it's uh, individual stories, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's an easy book also to, it's a great book for actually for the holidays, for a present. But one of the Isn't things I'm thinking, you know, the title of the book, Gretchen, <laughs> you know, you talk about the stigma associated, and I say stigma with cancer and kids, and you name the book Cookies for Kids Cancer, and you don't, most people don't want to associate cookies and cancer and kids together. Exactly. Well, it's true, but it has a good alliteration. Yeah. I think that if you lead with the word cookies and then kids and then cancer, it's, it, it, it raises an eyebrow and it makes people go, huh, what's this about? Um, I should also probably mention that 100% of the author proceeds are going directly to pediatric cancer research. Um, we should name some of those. Texas Children's Cancer Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering, St. Jude's, Dana-Farber, all the big cancer centers around the country. Texas Children's Cancer Center, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I mean, yeah, all the big guns. All the and big guns. And those are the ones that are really leading the charge with the most advances. And then typically what happens in pediatric cancer is the advances are made at one of those leading centers, and then it funnels down to local hospitals. What's been the response of the medical profession? Overwhelming. We try to take the middleman out of pediatric cancer funding. We have an all-star medical advisory board that advises us on where the money should go. We are, we are very focused on, and this is, as a parent, this is so hard to hear, but we are very focused on funding research that has the best chance of leading to a treatment option for a child in the shortest amount of time. And we can tell you that the first project that we helped to fund with the, um, the giant 96,000 cookie bakeathon, the treatment that we were actually working on to fund for that one just became available in the middle of August. Congratulations. That's exciting. That, that's really exciting work. 
10. I, I think guess that's why you are the, you are, and I have to mention this name, Women's Day Magazine, 50 Women Who Are Changing the World. So you deserve that, uh, that accolade, that uh, reward, award. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. That's it's, great. It's, so uh, tell us the whole, I mean, because it sounds like, I mean, you started out with a cookbook, but as you said, there are so many other things now that have evolved from this right. cookbook. Let's talk about some of those. Well, we have had literally hundreds and hundreds, if not over a thousand schools that have participated in Cookies for Kids Cancer events. They have started clubs. The very first one was in Calabasas High School. Um, it, it, it overwhelms and amazes me when I see children getting involved. We've had a group of moms who started this idea of Moms Night Out, and they have had fundraising events across the country where a bunch of moms and sometimes dads, depending on the market, get together and have a fundraiser for pediatric cancer, and there's always some sort of element of a bake sale that's involved. It, it's, it has, it, I think the thing that's always interesting to me is how viral the cause has been and how many people have gotten involved just by word of mouth and hearing about it. And I am, I'm always humbled to see that people choose to get involved. And, and those are my heroes. Those are the people who I salute and I am so grateful for. Gretchen, also, I think, don't you think some of the social media, of course, is helpful now? You have uh, twitter.com slash cookies for kids, and it's a, the number four. That's uh, uh, Twitter. And also, I just want to mention again, uh, cookiesforkids.org. That's the website. Well, cookiesforkidscancer.org, yeah. Cookiesforkidscancer.org, right. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, you talk about, I mean, viral, is, it's once you have this idea and you get the thing going, uh, as you say, I mean, you can do it throughout the world. I mean, you're not confined just to the United States. You can raise no. awareness, public awareness of pediatric cancer and then help to fund it. Absolutely. I mean, pediatric cancer, no matter where you are in the world, gets the short end of the funding stick. And having gone through um, treatment with my son, I can tell you that it was a it was, it was like being in the U.N. You'd meet a child from Saudi Arabia. You'd meet a child from Australia. You'd meet a child from South Africa. There were kids coming from all over the world for treatment, and that's something that I don't think a lot of people who are not intimately involved with pediatric cancer understand is that you know, the, the world is a very small place, and if you have a... A tough cancer diagnosis as a child, you go to the center where they treat the most number of cases of that type of cancer. And so we would be, meet kids from all over the world. I remember meeting a family from Jordan and just being amazed. Israel, you name it, Moscow. There was a family from Moscow that I met. So it's what what we are trying to do eventually, we hope, it's it's our fervent prayer will benefit children not just here in the U.S., but everywhere. Well, now I have a suggestion because I'm looking at the cookies and all that, I mean, cupcakes, and I, you even have, like, caramelized matzah. I was thinking about the kids from Israel. Uh, <laughs> chocolate-covered caramel-laced matzah. Oh, that is, you want to put a feed trough on and just go <laughs> at it when you pick that one. But now, oh, what about, you know, if you have all of these, I mean, you have all of these kids from around the world and, and, and getting connected and getting the best care that they can at, at the major medical facilities, what about cookbooks that represent each one of their countries, the kinds of foods that they eat? That could be, I'm giving you, maybe that could be another cookbook or two. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll, I'll mention that to my editor. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, not, I mean, these cookies look. I mean, these are great. Um, and also, they're easy to make. I have to say this too. You know, kids can make them too. I mean, that which is, I think, and participate in the co- cooking, which is also very therapeutic, especially when you're ill and you're not feeling well. But you oh, can absolutely. become a part. Of- and you brought up two really good points. One is that it was very important to me that the recipes be easy, because what's the point of having a recipe if it's so complicated that you get intimidated and don't make it? So everything in the book is easy. And as you've noted, it's it's not just cookies. I mean, yes, that's the name of our organization, but there are brownies. There are scones, there are cheese bites, there are um, muffins, there's a little bit of everything. There's even a nut recipe in there. So it's a little bit of everything, but each one of the recipes that's in there represents something that is great for a bake sale. One thing that you won't find is blueberry pie because blueberry pie is a little messy to eat in your hand when you're walking by a bake sale and picking something up. So these are things that are practical kinds of cookies, too, and cakes and things that you can take with you. You can give to the right. kids. They can put them in their lunch, but whatever. It's not something that's too complicated or too much of a mess. Exactly, exactly. It was something that had to you had to be able to grab it and be able to walk and go. Those, that was the criteria for the recipes making it in the book. Now, let's go talk about the website, too, because you've got all, all, you know, this information is on the website, and if anybody, and I assume everybody is going to be interested, go to the website, cookiesforkidscancer.org, and you have stories, too. You have, uh, you know, especially kids who inspire us. I went to one of those, went to uh, one of those stories. Um, uh, so it, per, you make it very personal. It's not just inf- information, but it's also this, Everyone likes to hear sto- other people's stories. I think that's, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, I, I, gosh, the children who I have met. Are um, amazing. They, they, you know, it's awful to say, but it, a kid is the, and I don't want this to be perceived the wrong way, but yeah. kids are awesome patients. They don't complain. They just get through it and they move on. And I can't tell you how many days my husband or my husband, my son and I would spend in the hospital. And at the end of the day, he'd look at me and say, okay, what are we going to do now? And we would go off and have some sort of adventure. I mean, he, my, hus- my, my husband, thinking about my husband, um, my son and I just, he was my hero. I mean, he's, he's my hero because he never once complained. And his job was just, to live, and that's what he did so, so well, despite what he was going through. He never missed an opportunity to have an adventure and to go out there and explore and to do something. And to be positive, it sounds like you're saying, positive about the life or the day that he was living. The day, no, Absolutely. He, yeah. Every day, we, we, I can poignantly remember um, one specific day in the fall, and it reminds me of a day that is like today, and it's a beautiful day where I am today, and we spent hour after hour in the hospital. We came outside. It was the late afternoon sun. He smelled the air. He looked up at the sky, and he said to me, Mommy, it's a beautiful day. And the way he said beautiful, he was so emphatic in the way that he said it. And, you know, I I don't know if your listeners know that I lost my son in January, and it was... um, it's been very, very difficult, but I have two choices. I can either curl up in a ball and cry and mourn his loss, or I can do what he would want me to do, which is to make it better for others. And 
I know that the very first question he'll ask me when I see him again, and I know I'll see him again, is, Mommy, did you make it better for other kids? Because that would be the number one thing that he would want me to do. And your answer will be yes, because that's exactly what you're doing. And I I see that. I really, you know, kids deserve better than what we're offering them today. They really do. And to have my son's doctor say to me, it's not science that's holding us back, it's funding. It's just, you know, it's one thing to receive a cancer diagnosis for a child. It's another thing to then be kicked in the gut, finding out how little funding there is. And that's just unacceptable. And I choose to do something about it. I also choose not to, not to necessarily lobby because I feel like I can get more done. You know, you think about that, and, and when I first read, uh, just, you know, saw the book and your bio, it's so true. When you know that the science is there for the cure for the cancer, for pediatric cancer, it's available. It can be available, and the only thing that's holding it back is the funding. Yeah. Um, that... And basically what that means is you put a price tag on a child's head. And my child and every child is priceless. Well, I can see that from, I mean, I'm going, you know, I had gone through some of the stories that you have on the website. You know, are there any one of those, how do you, the children that you have on the website, how do you, do, do, do parents send in um, their stories or, or how does that work? Oh, absolutely, they do. And if there is anybody listening who knows a child who's battling or has battled pediatric cancer, they are more than welcome to send us their story. Um, in, you know, like when, when our organization started, we had no idea what was going to go. It was just my idea as a mom and my thing that I was going to do. It seemed practical for me to make cookies versus having a car wash. Because <laughs> well, I agree with you. <laughs> I think I would have chosen your route, 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 route as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we, we certainly had no idea that we were going to hit a nerve with people. Um, so in the beginning, it was clearly, it was me cashing in chips of favors with my friends and me also asking the cancer families who I personally knew and said, would you like to be a part of this? It has since grown into something so much bigger and so much beyond me. And I, I, I couldn't be prouder. It, that's what it should do. I mean, Children so you've given are... so much, Gretchen. Now, tell us, what have you gotten back? And I think it sounds like, from what I'm hearing you say, you get back from a lot of different sources. I mean, from the kids, from the parents, from the physicians. But well, I kind of like to hear it in your own words. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I, I'm a little rough on myself, maybe. I, I don't feel like I've really done anything yet. And while... I'm certainly proud of the $4 million that we've raised in three years. Quite frankly, it should be $40 million. And until every treatment that's sitting on a shelf that needs funding has funding, I won't be happy I mean, and I won't rest. And what I get out of this is that I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard, and there are so many hundreds and thousands of people who are trying so hard just to give kids a fighting chance. That's what they deserve. They deserve all the options that are available. Well, you are, you are rough on yourself because you are, you know, you're doing everything that you can, it seems to me. I, I have a question, like we named some of the major cancer centers. What if a parent's uh, child is diagnosed maybe at not a major cancer center? 
uh, and they are treated at a local hospital or a community hospital. Um, do do the, any of these monies ever get there, or is oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, it, it the way that pediatric cancer works, it really depends on the diagnosis. There is the jackpot of all diagnoses, the one that my son received, which is a, a stage four diagnosis, and he had a couple of other genetic factors that had nothing to do with genes that my husband and I passed along, just the way that his body developed, that made his diagnosis a particularly challenging one. Not every child is like that. I mean, there are, there are certain kinds of pediatric cancer that, based on the diagnosis, you're in great hands at a local hospital. But if you have a very specialized diagnosis, you really want to try and get to the places or at least have a consult with the places where they see the most number of cases. What we try to do is we fund research that sometimes goes into a, well, actually most of the time, goes into an organization called COG, which is Children's Oncology Group, and it's kind of like the governing body for all of pediatric cancer. And the number two person a woman by the name of Dr. Susan Blaney um, for COG, she's actually at Texas Children, is the chair of our medical advisory board. So she really has her finger on the pulse of everything that's happening across the board, across the country for all types of pediatric cancer. And we are very diligent and, and, and very critical of exactly where the funding is going because we want to get it in the hands of the researchers who are on the cutting edge of coming up with new treatments and discoveries, and then we can get them in the hands of people at local hospitals. Yeah, Mike, I also want to ask you about your husband because obviously you two have done this together, supporting one another, um, and couples very often aren't able to do that. And no. It, no, and it sounds like, you know, both of you are, obviously you are able to do it, and we're able to do it, and um, uh, just talk to us a little bit about that and how that worked for both of you. Well, I it, <laughs> well. You don't have to give us the whole marriage scenario. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I'm sure that other married couples will appreciate this story, which is, when I first had the idea to make the 96000 I didn't tell my husband because I knew he would think that I was probably off of my rocker. So I just set about going about the process, and when it was so far into it, that's when I kind of let him in on it, you know, so far that I couldn't turn back. Um, but obviously since we realized the success of the 2007 mega bakeathon. My husband and I are really good about dividing and conquering. He handles one side of the organization. I handle another side of the organization. And for us, it's really, it's what life is all about. It's about making it better for others. And as painful as this is, this gives us an outlet, and it, and it allows us to feel like our son's battle was not in vain. But the first bit of advice is don't tell your husband what you're doing. Get it on. Yeah. Get it going first and then tell him. <laughs> well, you That's know, it was, it's what worked for us. <laughs> yeah. And probably, you're right, works for most people. But, uh, but you both there have it, I think you mentioned, you just don't mention <laughs> what you do and what he does. So you both have different skills to offer to the organization, which is a good thing. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it doesn't hurt that we work together as well. So professionally... We work together, and, and 
that made it a little bit easier because he and I know how to tackle, block, divide, and conquer. I know what his skill sets are and what his strengths are. He knows what mine are. And so that definitely made it easier. And and when you're going through something so scary, like battling for your child's life, I think for us it was a way that we could stay together as a unit and as a couple and and feel the solidarity between the two of us without actually having to talk about our fears. There's you, you just you can't go there, but then you don't want to feel helpless and a cancer diagnosis as an adult is scary enough as a child, it's even scarier, but this allowed us a venue to be able to feel like we were doing something together and, and helping not, each other. Yeah, and and not feeling like victims. That's you're you're doing something that's proactive, that's good, that's positive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and doing it together. Um, so what we want to we have a couple more minutes left, sure. and uh, obviously I'm going to mention the website again: cookiesforkidscancer.org. Cookies for Kids Cancer Best Bake Sale Cookbook is the name of the cookbook, and we've been talking to Gretchen Holt Witch. She's the founder of Cookies for Kids Cancer. So anybody listening, let's say next step, maybe their child has been just diagnosed with cancer. What would you suggest they do? Um, who receive a cancer diagnosis? Mm-hmm. It, it really, again, it really depends on the exact diagnosis. I, my son's diagnosis was the worst of all. I mean, not the worst of all, but it was a really bad diagnosis. And in our case, it made the most sense for us um, to take him to the place where they treat more cases of his type of diagnosis than any others. But it, it's really, it's not a... There's not one answer that can cover all types of cancer. There are some types of cancer that we've made a lot of advances in. Leukemia is a great example. Um, But there's others where we're woefully behind, and more than 25% of children who receive a cancer diagnosis will not survive. And those are the kinds of cancers that really need attention and focus. So it's a complex issue, but you've taken a piece of it, and you and your husband are, I mean, you're doing great stuff. I mean, really good work. And um, I want to mention the cookbook one more time, and then we have to say goodbye, but it's Cookies for Kids Cancer, Best Bake Sale Cookbook. Big picture, I think it's a chocolate chip cookie on the front. It looks, um, it's almost lunchtime here. One. It looks yeah. really good. But, Gretchen, thanks so much for being on the show today. I would have sent you some cookies. <laughs> yeah, well, but you can still do it. <laughs> you can have Believe a me. I I'm happy it. to join you with an apron on anytime. Okay, great. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Bye-bye. Gretchen Holt-Witt. Now, coming up next, uh, we have Richard DeMilo, and he's going to be talking about his new book, Abelard to Apple, The Fate of American Colleges and Universities, How Institutions of Higher Learning Can Rescue Themselves from Irrelevance and Marginalization. I'm Catherine Zotcher, social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
you need directions to solid financial future? If so, The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for The Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Fox, your social worker with a microphone, voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And you can listen to my new show, which is The Social Workers in Albany, New York, uh, WCDB, that's an FM station, and that's every Thursday from 9 to 10 Eastern Time, The Social Workers, and I'm the host of that show, Catherine Zox. But next, my guest is the author of Abelard to Apple, Richard DeMilo. He's a professor of computing and professor of management at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, and his new book, as I said, is Abelard to Apple, which um, the fate of American colleges and universities, how institutions of higher learning can rescue themselves from irrelevance and marginalization. Well, I guess we have a real problem in Richard in his book mentions particularly there are 2,000 or so private and public institutions that are described as middle, reputable educational institutions, although they are not the elite in the Ivy League, but uh, they are significant schools and they are having problems because they are, I guess they are irrelevant and becoming irrelevant or could be. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Richard. Thanks, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah. Now, we, before we started, you know, we were talking beforehand, you said there's so much to cover because... This, I mean, I see this as a major problem. I have a lot to do with uh, SUNY Albany, the State University of Albany in New York, and all of the things, all the problems that you mention in the book uh, we suffer from. So how, what, um, 
why are they become let's t- the book is for everyone as you said for parents students it's for public it's not just a book for professors and administrators so what are we talking about why are, are in the 21st century are these kind of middle of the road colleges and universities becoming irrelevant well universities have have liked to think of themselves as as separate from society and and we've kind of encouraged that um, in our our um, in our thinking about about higher education um, you know, ivy covered walls and, and and ivory towers and and all of all of that the um the fact of the matter is that that universities are part of society and and they're undergoing exactly the same economic political um forces that that every other institution in society um is is feeling and and uh, a lot of them are are slow to to react uh it, this isn't a new problem it's since the, the, the title of the book, Abelard to Apple, refers to a person named Peter Abelard, who was an 11th century monk. A lot of people think that he was really the first true university professor, uh, and uh, he was a charismatic guy, drew thousands of students to him. And Apple, of course, refers to Apple Computer, 21st century icon. If you go to the Apple I, iTunes site, you'll find a link to something called uh, iTunes U, um, online lectures from the best professors in the world, uh, absolutely for for free. So, so 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 the book talks about this this journey that higher education has been on from Peter Abelard to uh, um, to Steve Jobs, really, and and how at various points in that last thousand years, universities have marginalized themselves, become irrelevant because they've forgotten that they're part of of society, and and we're really going through that kind of that kind of transformation. Right, so right. you're saying, Richard, though, that that's the reason why they haven't made changes because they see themselves as separate and different than all the, than society. So they don't have to make the same kinds of changes that other institutions do, other businesses. Uh, the, uh, so they have. So okay, so that's why they haven't made the changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what kinds of changes need to be made? I mean, I think you describe you describe them in your book as medieval institutions, or they still appear to have the centuries-old models of, uh, in terms of the way they, they function and operate, these universities and colleges. Yeah, they, they, haven't, they haven't changed much. You know, the, the, uh, the fact is that higher education in, in the United States uh, is, is what I call a class system. So there are a few institutions uh, at, the, at the top, the Ivy League institutions, the, the, the prestigious state universities, uh, and at the other extreme, uh, there's a ton of experimentation taking place. The, 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 the private for-profit universities, the online universities, universities like Western Governors University, which is a completely online consortium of, um, of 11 Western, um, Western states. And, and, of course, those are experiments. So, so you find a lot of innovation taking place uh, in, in, in that part of higher education. And this, this middle region that I talk about, I talk about the middle uh, as, as the part of higher education that enrolls 80% of, of the college-age students, um, it has to figure out what course it's going to follow. And, and the system is set up so that universities in the middle um, try to emulate the guys at the top. And, and it's, it's absolutely a rigged game. It's, it's not something that they, that they, can, um, that they can, then can do well. Uh, and along the way, they, they lose a sense of, of who they are. There's, there's a lot of books out these days about how to, uh, how to save higher education, what's wrong with higher education. And the, the books that are out there seem all to say we have to somehow change the system. Uh, we have to provide more funding. We have to change 
higher education in some in some fundamental way. And and my take on that is um, I don't believe it. Uh, I, I think that that transformation is within the um, the control of each institution. They can decide what their value is. They can decide if they're a small state institution that they are not going to emulate the University of Michigan. They are going to determine their own um, their own value. And the book has. A so lot give of us a, yeah, I was going to say, Richard, give us an example of that, because it's true. I think it, we tend to look at the uh, Ivy Leagues and say, well, we should be doing, you know, we, this is our role model. This is, these are our role models for education. And you're saying no, because it's a different, what, different type of university or college, different student body. Um, so Yeah, so, so just you know, at, a, at, a, at a basic level, if you're going to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year, in, in tuition, the institution that you're sending your money to should be able to explain what value you're going to receive for that um, for that tuition uh, tuition dollar. And, and as I said, there are lots of examples. One of my favorite examples uh, is a little college in California called Harvey Mudd uh, College. It only enrolls um, seven or eight hundred students. But isn't that that's is Harvey Mudd and Scripps? And there are several of those colleges. Don't aren't they kind of a, or they are a consortium of small. Colleges in Indeed. California, and, and 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 what what's happened is that places like Harvey Mudd have have, have articulated a very very clear sense of a purpose. Har- Harvey Mudd is is a school that educates um, uh, engineers, scientists, um, mathematicians uh, who want to go into areas like public policy that require a strong liberal arts background. So so it's a school that's an engineering school in which students take thirty percent of their coursework in the uh, in the liberal arts. And you find really innovative things taking place at Harvey Mudd, like writing being required in in every course that they that they take uh, a math course. Why would you want to write uh, in a uh, in a math course? Well, because if you're going to do uh, economic analysis, you're going to have to write reports. You're going to have to learn the critical reasoning skills that you probably are not going to learn in a standalone uh, writing course. So why not build it into the entire? Into the entire curriculum. Well, can you compare? Let's say you're talking about Harvey Mudd. It sounds like they're very focused. They know what their mission is, what they want to do, where they want to place their students. Can you compare a small college like Harvey Mudd that doesn't? I don't know if we want to name names, but isn't doing that 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 they try to emulate the Ivy League, and so they don't really have they, their they, own. They compete. They compete with with the with the Ivy League, and in fact, Harvey Mudd competes very effectively with MIT and and Stanford, but they don't do it by emulating. Stanford and, and MIT. Uh, they they don't they don't do research. There's no emphasis on research uh, at, at at Harvey Mudd. Professors focus uh, exclusively on undergraduate and undergraduate education and this particular kind of undergraduate uh, education. So people who who wind up on the Harvey Mudd campus feel in the air the excitement that the students have for the things that they're learning, the way that they're um, the way that they're they're learning it. So give us another example, uh, an East Coast example of, because we have many, we have so many small colleges and, and huge, large universities here on the East Coast. Um, give us an example of, uh, or is there an example of a college or university that's doing similar, doing like, say, what Harvey Mudd is doing? Sure. Uh, yeah. the, the, um, the, the example that comes to mind on, on, the, other, on the other coast is, is uh, uh, is Olin College in 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 Boston. So Olin is again a tiny uh, a tiny university, um, exclusively uh, undergraduate. They have taken uh, their curriculum apart and and, uh, uh, and and put it back together in the form of, of projects. So 
What you find at, at, at Olin is a decreased emphasis on courses, on formal courses, and, and an increased e- emphasis on putting together projects that are going to carry students through an entire four-year, four-year curriculum. And, and in fact, Olin doesn't even teach all of its own courses. It's so, it's so small that they have agreements with local universities so that areas where, where there are other universities, Boston University, for example, may be stronger in, um, uh, in humanities area, uh, and, and Olin would send its students to Boston University to take those uh, to take those courses. Again, a very successful model, and, and one of the things that Olin was set up to do was provide tuition-free education. So it's a very high-quality uh, high program, and, and uh, uh, the students do not, um, uh, do not pay tuition to go there. So what you're saying is then if you do that, um, the, the monies that uh, obviously colleges and universities are trying to cut costs or are cutting costs, that they'll be able to what, hone in on the, a specific kind of student? Everything is much more focused, is that, and use the money to develop programs that are very specific? So, so, so those are examples of two, of two small, small colleges. Let, let me give you something at the other, at the other extreme. Um, Arizona State University uh, is, is undergoing a transformation. Arizona State is, by anyone's estimation, a university in the middle. It's, it's, a, it's a large state university. Uh, it enrolls students with lots of um, uh, lots of diversity. It enrolls students with different uh, different capabilities, and of course, it's not a technical school. So, so it has, in addition to engineering, all the other things you would find in a comprehensive university. Most other state universities of that size are chasing uh, the University of Michigan. If I can just use that that example, they are trying to become the next great research university. Uh, the president of Arizona State is a guy named Michael Crow who came from, from Columbia University and decided when he got to Arizona State that he wanted to reinvent uh, what it meant to be uh, a state university in the, in the U.S. And so, and so he made some, some really dramatic changes. So, for example, he said, we are not going to limit ourselves to a specific size. Any, anyone who is qualified to get into Arizona State uh, can come to us, and we'll figure out a way to, uh, to pay for it. Uh, we're not going to get great by being more selective. He, in fact, he's, he's famous for a quote that, that says, you know, we're not gonna, going to improve our, prove ourselves uh, on the basis of who we uh, exclude. And, and he's, he's carried through on that through some pretty severe budget cuts uh, in, the state of, in the state of Arizona. Uh, and and you know, there's an example of, of university leadership in which um, the president and, and, and his faculty and his, his staff has decided we are rooted in the Southwest, we are rooted in the state of, of, of Arizona. Our value is ultimately going to be judged on what we return to the state of, of Arizona, and that's what they're focused on, like a uh, like a laser. Now he's drawn a lot of criticism from other university presidents for that, but he's he's stuck pretty close to his guns. Yeah, that is very different than most universities. Uh, you know, having had the experience of being at SUNY Albany, but many other universities, because you're so right. Because what they end up doing is bragging about. Usually, when you, if you, you know, bragging about the SAT scores that are how high they are, you know, and, and so that's that same thing, trying to emulate the Ivy Leagues. You know, we, our students are, you know, smart, and and we're, um, you know, we pick only the best, and, and you know that kind of thing. So, so let's take like, let's take SAT scores as an example. The uh, the fact of the matter is that that universities try to get great by by. Um, uh, uh, by improving um, on on things like 
uh, their selectivity, um, SAT scores. These things are not predictive of any success, either in academic life or in, in later life. Um, one of the dirty little secrets um, of higher education is that SAT scores predict only first-year success. Uh, and beyond that, students are sort of on their uh, on their own. So a university that, that tries to rise in the U.S. News and World Report rankings by uh, cranking up the, uh, the SAT scores uh, of its entering freshmen is probably missing the, um, the hidden gem, the student who didn't do well uh, on the SAT that has a real vision for what they want to do in life and would do very well in that university. You know, it seems to me graduate schools um, do a, more of this, well, obviously because they're more focused, but uh, you know, they, want, you know, they take into account you know, not necessarily scores, but experience and life experience and work experience and, and all of those things before they admit you to a graduate school program. Right, right. Uh, of course, there, there, there's a lot, uh, a lot of people. You build up a network of, uh, uh, of collaborators and, and, and teachers the more you're associated with the university, and, and those people become mentors. Uh, to you. Much like Peter Abelard was a mentor a thousand years ago, these are, these are people that become mentors to you and, and help promote your career. Um, Richard, you have in your book um, a roadmap for change, or you call it a roadmap for change, with 10 rules for the 21st century for right. these colleges and universities. When we talk about some, we've talked, we've actually covered some of them, but um, is there anything that we've left out? What, what do we specifically need to be doing? Because, you know, because I mean, I have degrees from Boston University and SUNY Albany and a lot of different schools and even prep schools, and I, I can't tell you, every month I'm getting stuff like money. They want more and more money, but you know, where's the money going, and don't we need to make some of these changes? Right. So, so my, my, my rules are, are, are really less rules than, than um, principles that, that every university president knows and, 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 could, and could act on um, to, to move them from where they are now, which is largely on a course to, uh, uh, to failure, uh, to, to something that, that's more successful, more attuned to to how they um, how they, they started, you know, I, I I really focus on um, on the issue of, of not changing who you are, but discovering who you are. And, and, and these are these are rules that if you if you drill down with the university president and say, so how did your university start? Where do you get your students from? What do students tell you was the most valuable part of their of their their education? This is how you recover that. And and the rules really fall into two categories. One is discover your value. Um, figure out what you do best, and then figure out how you're going to, going to deliver that to as many students as you can. And 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 the second set of rules has to do with rearchitecting re uh, the um, the institution, not changing the system, not changing the way public funding works, but changing the way you work so that you can deliver that uh, deliver that that value. Sometimes it involves things that are kind of obvious, like let's use technology better. Um, but sometimes it it really gets to um, I think dearly held principles that are simply not true, like the SAT scores are are uh, are predictive of of what students are going to do when they enter our institution. I think one of the things that you mentioned, and I see this at many colleges, or maybe most, as you say, uh, this whole idea of um, not being able to balance what you call faculty centrism and student centrism. Yep. Yep. That you know the university becomes too focused on the needs of its faculty. I think that that's really an issue and a problem. That and it's uh, an ancient. The, it's an ancient problem, Catherine. This, yeah. this is this is a debate that's been going on for a thousand years. Um, when the first universities started, the first university was started in in Italy at the University of, of Bologna, 
it was it was an association of students, uh, and 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 they um, they were drawn to study law at at, at Bologna. They paid um, the the teachers at Bologna to de- to deliver their, their their courses. Slowly, that model drifted to a faculty centric model, and and in a fa- faculty centered university, what you find is that the the minutia of the teaching profession. Um, Comes before the needs of the um, uh, of the students, and it it it, so, it sounds like a terrible thing, but but I think any time you get a group of people together where they're focused on their on their own needs um, and 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 uh, and less on delivering value, because I guess you can, really can't measure the value in a, in a university. Uh, that's the kind of thing that you that you get. It happened in the U.S. By the way, when Johns Hopkins uh, was formed as a research um, university, and all of a sudden. Uh, the um, the ability to attract research quality scientists and 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 scholars to Johns Hopkins took precedence over um, what the students were were expecting from this university. Since we only have a couple minutes left, let's talk about how about making a comparison because you know we get a lot in the news and stuff about how the the uh, well, for instance, China and their educational system is so different than ours and so much better and. They produce smarter, more successful students. Uh, what are they doing, or are they doing things very differently? Or it gets back to this issue of experimentation. There is a lot of experimentation taking place in other parts of the of the world. Um, um, in Asia, there are a hundred, if you can believe this number, there are a hundred new universities a day being formed, uh, and and they're entirely experiments. Some of them will uh, will grow and prosper. Some of them will will fail dismally, but that's the nature. Of an experiment, and you're seeing in China, for example, these new universities, um, these new universities springing up. Uh, it, one of the one of the areas that uh, the Labor Department tells us is going to continue to grow over the next um, over the next decade is a field called software engineering, um, you know, the, the the engineering of of, of software products uh, and and services. Uh, there are 1,600 universities in China devoted to software software engineering. Uh, in the U.S., you can barely find a degree in in software engineering. So they they are pointed very squarely at where they think China is um, is heading. And then um, you get to issues like grade inflation. Um, in the U.S., uh, it's like you know, uh, Prairie Home Companion, Lake Wobegon. Everyone is above average. Um, half half of the students in the in, in the U.S. get A's, A's or B's. Uh, that's not true in a Chinese university. Students expect to be treated. Um, um, not so much harshly as as uh, uh, as um, based on their merits. Uh, the, the you know, I, I, there, there's, a, there's a story that I heard from a, a Chinese colleague recently. Uh, there, you know, Chinese universities are trying to staff um, because the student load is is growing, so they're they're hiring foreign professors. So I heard a story about, about a foreign professor who was teaching at the University of Beijing, uh, and the and the students uh, came to the dean and said, "We want this professor fired." Uh, something that you don't normally find in a Chinese university. Well, as it turns out, the students were convinced that this professor was too easy. He was grading too easy. His lectures uh, were, were were too easy. They didn't want that. They wanted the challenge of having a professor who was a world-class scholar uh, challenge them and, and, and make them better. You don't find that very much in American universities. Uh, in American universities, there's uh, a lot of data that, that, that says that we're, we're actually teaching less. Students are performing uh, less well in the first two um, two years, and and we we grade them uh, to make life easy for ourselves, not necessarily to to provide an objective measure of what students know or what they've achieved. 
That's a very interesting concept, albeit a depressing one, but I think one that we really need to take a look at. Uh, this has been a great conversation with you, and I want to, I know listeners obviously would feel the same way, but so I want to mention the book again, Abelard to Apple, The Fate of American Colleges and Universities, and we've been talking about how institutions of higher learning here in the United States have to rescue themselves from irrelevance, and uh, Richard DeMilo, author, professor, uh, website that you would like to direct listeners to for more information? Uh, well, two sites. One is one is uh, either Amazon or Barnes Noble, where the the, the, the book is is available, uh, and and the other site is is um, to my own um, uh, organization here at Georgia Tech called the Center for Twenty First Century Universities. Uh, its web address is c twenty one u dot g a tech g a t e c h dot edu. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Richard. Thank you, Catherine. I enjoyed it. I did, too. It was a pleasure. Um, you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, and I am your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com. As I said, please listen to us live every Wednesday from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And uh, if you can't do that, then you can archive us in my new show, The Social Workers, on uh, Thursday mornings uh, in uh, Albany, New York, WCDB-FM 90.9. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.